All right, this morning we want to turn in our Bibles, if you have one, to the last book of the Bible, to the book of Revelation chapter 12. Revelation chapter 12. Normally on the Sunday before or of Christmas, as it sometimes happens, we go to one of the Gospels and we would read an account of Jesus' birth. And there's nothing wrong with that. We've been doing that since I've been here for the last 10 years. But uh, we're in the Gospel of Luke right now. Last uh, Christmas we looked all at, at uh, Luke's account. And so this morning I thought it might be Helpful, at the very least interesting, if we look at the same story but from a different perspective. We're looking still at the birth of Jesus and what that means for us, but we're looking at it from a different angle. Rather than putting ourselves into the story next to Joseph and Mary as they wonder at this baby that God has entrusted to them, or perhaps behind the shepherds as they delight in this child who will grow up to be the true shepherd of souls. What if this morning we put ourselves up under the very throne room of God, under under God himself, in his very presence from heaven, and see from his perspective what is transpiring in the birth of Jesus Christ. We don't need to imagine what that would be like because this is what has happened to John the Apostle in this book. And he tells us what he saw. He tells us how we should understand the gospel story, the story of Christmas from the perspective of heaven itself. So here's what John saw, here's what he says to us, here's what we want to unpack and understand this morning. Follow along as I read Revelation chapter 12 beginning at verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns on its head, seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. For she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven. Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan. The deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth. And his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of the great eagle, so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. 
The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and the dragon that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he stood on the sand of the sea. May God bless the reading of his word. Now let me offer just a little bit of encouragement right out of the gates, because you may be thinking, what in the world is all of that about? And uh, in fact, some people just at the mere mention of this book, they kind of shake like the jackals in The Lion King, Mufasa, ooh, right? Uh, we say revelation, we go, ooh, I don't know about that, I want to stay away from that. And, and we understand why, because when you read the book, there is so much imagery, there's so much going on, and it's kind of layered upon layered upon layered, and it's very difficult, at least on the surface, to know what is happening here. But we, what we need to understand is that when we come to this book, that chapter after chapter is filled with imagery from the Old Testament. If you understand, if you know well the Old Testament, then as you're reading, uh, time after time after time, you will say, that's from this passage, and that's from this passage, and that's from this passage, and it becomes much easier to understand. So let me just maybe offer a slight corrective to what you may have heard on television or in books. Do not take the morning newspaper and sit down with a book of Revelation and try and determine what it means from what you read there. Open up the Old Testament and determine what Revelation is saying based on the imagery that John is using there. What we see is, in fact, not just imagery from the Old Testament applied to John's situation in which he is writing, but rather being used as larger themes that describe the general experiences of God's people throughout time. Now again, that says that sounds complicated, but the reality is we actually interact with material like this all the time, whether we know it or not. All great films, all great novels and fiction operate on this level. There is on one level the story. Well, whatever it is. But behind that, the author is either trying to make some social commentary or describe something that is endemic to all people for all time. In other words, there's what's on the surface, then there's the subtext behind it. So, for example, one of my favorite books as a, as a, as a young man, The Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. It's an intriguing story of a failed experiment that results as one man living as two, a mere image of the other, one good and one evil. And you can enjoy it just on that level, a kind of, a, a kind of psychological sci-fi thriller. But as Robert Louis Stevenson is writing this, he's actually writing to say something more important about the very nature of good and evil itself. That despite our best efforts, evil is not outside of us. Evil is within us, welling up within us, and we can't do anything to stop it. It is a part of who we are. Perhaps you're not a fan of Robert Louis Stevenson in the classics. Perhaps you're more of a, of a pop lit or, 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 or contemporary movie person. In which case I would point you to the Hunger Games, which has been so popular over the last year or so. Here we have on the surface uh, apparently a story of human triumph framed in the context of a bleak society that's, that's caused by the devastating war. Yet on another level what we see there is in fact uh, the twisted results of a culture consumed with pleasure, excess, and entertainment under a totalitarian rule. One part of society celebrates gruesome violence like it's a Macy's parade, the other languishes in a life of labor with little food or resources. 
On the one surface, it just seems like a, a, an interesting story, but on another, the author is making a, a social commentary on where we're headed. Are we going to become so consumed with entertainment that even the most violent, deadly, even real killing of people just becomes popcorn to us? Uh, so, 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 something to pass the time. Or are we going to stop and think about the plight of all those around us and work for a better society? That's what she's driving at in those books. So my point is, don't be, don't feel like, why well, I'm never going to understand the, the, this book. It's not as hard as you think. And in fact, your mind has already been trained by the culture in which we live to think in such a way that revelation can be easily unraveled and unpacked. So what do we have for us this morning? In our passage, on one level, we have this vision of a woman and her son being threatened by this dragon. It's Mary about to give birth to Jesus. It's the Christmas story under the threat of Satan himself. But it's more than that, too. There are larger spiritual realities that point to a bigger ongoing conflict between Satan and God's people. That has always been the case and always will be the case until Jesus returns. So this morning, as we walk through this passage, we want to think about the story of Christmas. And what we want to see is not only a baby born almost 2,000 years ago, but a Savior who reigns victorious over the spiritual enemy of his people. To see this, we want to to understand kind of three movements, three main images from our text. The threat, the rescue, and the victory. That's what we want to see this morning. So let's begin by thinking about the threat that we see in this passage. In fact, that's how it opens up. There is this this evident threat that we see. And here we see first the threat is coming from God's enemy. We see it's a threat from God's enemy. John says he saw a great sign in heaven. A sign being an image, a person, a thing that represents something larger than itself. Okay? So the sign was a woman who was pregnant and crying out in birth pains in the agony of giving birth. Then there was another sign in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its head seven crowns, or diadems. The dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. Now, stop for a minute, and let's just think about all of the, the Christmas hymns that we love to sing. Hymns that reflect the Bible's narrative of Jesus' birth. And there's, a, there's always an edge of realism, not only to the Bible's descriptions, but also to those hymns. After all, this is a woman giving birth in the first century. We're not in a hospital. We're not in a doctor's office. You know, we're, we're, we're in the middle of a, uh, a, of an animal shelter here. But there's also something glorious about the whole thing as well. Here is a labor and delivery that has no problems. Here's a healthy baby brought into the world and immediately angels are rejoicing. Shepherds are coming out of the field and wondering what is going on. The mother and the father are amazed. And when you, when you sing those songs, when you read that story, unless you've just got a heart of stone, at the very least, you, you feel something warm welling up inside or you have to reach in your pocket for your hanky a little bit. You know what I'm saying? I mean, there's just something essentially heartwarming to that story. But notice John says there is something sinister that's also lurking in the background. It's almost hard to even imagine this scene that John sees. Here is this helpless woman, uh, hard in labor, pushing and in pain, waiting for this precious child. I say helpless because as a father who's been in in with his wife four times, I realize I'm helpless there. There's nothing I can do. She's completely on her own. All I can do is, is kiss her and tell her I love her that she's doing a good job and hold her hand. That's it. In that moment, uh, the, that woman is doing something marvelous and amazing designed by God, but she's totally helpless. 
And so imagine, imagine this woman sitting there, uh, legs in the stirrups, as it were, pushing with all her might, and, and right in front of her is this great dragon, licking its chomps, eyes blazing, ready to, to, to devour this child as soon as it's born. It's, the, it's a grotesque image. And yet John says it accurately portrays the spiritual realities of what's happening here. Who is this vile beast, this dragon? John tells us straight out in verse 9, it's, it's nothing less than Satan himself. Far from being the cartoon man in a red suit with a tail and horns, this is a real being. The Bible says that, that evil is not just a concept. Evil is not just an idea. It's not just some intangible thing out there. It, it, it's something that we all participate in, and yet... And yet evil personified is the enemy of God, Satan himself. A, a real created being who was determined to wage war against God and his people. In fact, this is what we see in the woman. We see the threat against God's people. We have a threat from God's enemy and that threat is directed against God's people. Now on one level, it's obvious who this woman is, right? It's Mary about to give birth to Jesus. Using the language of Psalm 2, which promises that the Messiah, God's anointed Savior, would be a son who rules the nations. That's Jesus. That's how, that's how the, this mother and son is described. And yet, and yet the woman is also described in such a way that we know she just can't, she can't just be Mary. She's got to be something more than just Mary. She is a, she's called a sign, and that sign represents all of God's people. You say, how do we know that? Well, let's think about this. Again, remember, let, let's click in our Old Testament mindset. If you've read the Old Testament, if not, then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you where to go and read to see these things for yourself. Okay, so you can take notes and write it down. John says she is clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now, that is right out of the dream that Joseph has about his mother and father and family in Genesis 37. It's the same language of sun and moon revealing not just her glory, but also the authority that's going to come from her to rule and to reign. The twelve stars, I think in light of the, the whole chapter, both look back to the twelve tribes of Israel, but they also look forward to the twelve apostles. So you have the old covenant people of God and the new covenant people, the church in view. In Isaiah 7, uh, that we saw referenced today in Matthew, it, we are told that a virgin, an individual, will conceive and bear a son whose name shall be called Emmanuel. But later in the same book, Isaiah 66, it's clear this is no random virgin. This is, this is a daughter of the nation of Israel. And there, the entire believing community of God's people is pictured as bringing forth the Messiah. He's not just the child of the virgin. He's the child, the son of Zion. All of the true believers in the Old Covenant. And notice how the passage ends. By telling us that the dragon became furious with this woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This isn't just the Old Covenant believing community. These are people who know the name of Jesus and are seeking to keep his testimony. Thus, the, the wrath that we see pictured here of Satan is a wrath against all of God's people embodied in this woman. Old Testament, New Testament, Israel and the church today. And all of this wrath, all of this threat is driven by the threat against God's Son. The threat against God's Son. This is the one who is the focus of Satan's rage. John says it's really the Son that he is seeking to devour just as he is born. Why? Because Satan knows this is the Messiah. This is the promised Savior. This will be the one, the anointed king who rules the nations with a rod of iron. 
Now, why is that a threat to Satan? Because in that moment, Satan is the one who rules the nations. He is the one who has a a sway of darkness guiding them in the way that he wants. And now he knows Jesus is coming to break that rule. Jesus is coming just as he was foretold all the way back in the first book of the Bible, Genesis 3. He is coming to, to be born, to rise up as the king, and to crush the head of Satan, ending his rule over the nations. Do you remember all that Mary and Joseph were told about Jesus? That there is a reason why Christmas is a time of celebration and joy for Christians. You know, we hit Good Friday... And, and to be honest, it's not really a day of joy. It's a day of sorrow. Thankfully, Sunday comes quickly, and now we get to experience joy again. But the reality is, when we celebrate Jesus' death, it, it's a death because of us. We put him there. And so it's always puzzled me sometimes, Good Friday services, where people are all backslapping and happy and jumping around and singing all these, all these songs. And I'm just thinking, like, you know, uh, that's, that's not really where the emphasis is. But at Christmas... At Christmas, the totality of what is coming is wrapped up. So we have not just the death, we also have the resurrection and the triumph. It's all, it's all funneling down from the perspective of history. So we say, this is the child that's going to be born. And therefore we're happy about that. We're joyous about that. Joseph is told in Matthew 1, don't, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Your wife is going to bear a son, and you'll call his name Jesus, which means God saves. For he will save his people from their sins. In Luke 1, Mary is told, The child that will be born shall be called holy, the Son of God. Later she's told, He will be great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then then Jesus is born and the angel appears to the shepherds in the field. And here's what he says. I bring you good news of great joy for all people, not just Israel, the globe, all the nations. This is for them. For today is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That That was the death announcement for Satan. His reign is done. For thousands of years he, he, he's been on a pretty long leash and now it's over. Now his head is being crushed and he is being thrown from his place of authority in the heavens down to earth. If you were here last Sunday, we just saw that in Luke 10. Jesus sends out his disciples to proclaim the kingdom. He says, I saw Satan fall. It's the beginning of the end. It's, 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 it's over for him. That's why Satan feared Jesus so much. This is why at the moment of his birth, he's thinking, I want to devour him. I want to end his life. I want to stop his triumph over me. But God sent him. God sent him and ensured that he would never, he would never fall to Satan, but would triumph over him. And though we don't deserve his coming, this is how God shows his love for us in the sending of that son, our savior. Through Jesus, sinners can be redeemed from sin and death in the reign of Satan. And that brings us to the second image that we see this morning, and that is the rescue. The rescue. We've seen We've seen the threat, now we see the rescue. And the first thing that we notice is that it's a divine rescue. It's a divine rescue. Notice the scene is set in the opening verses. The woman is in labor under the looming threat of this furious dragon who was on tent on devouring the newborn son. And then John tells us, verse 5, she gave birth to the male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God into his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. Okay, that was quick. I was expecting something else. I mean, you, you've got this scene, right? I mean, imagine if it was a movie. 
Right? I, I heard from at least a couple of people who went to go see The Hobbit. And they said the movie, the, the, the subtitle is The Desolation of Smog, which we know is the dragon. And they said it goes on and on and on and on and on. And there's not even a dragon at the very end and there's no desolation of that dragon. And they said, we feel gypped. Well, imagine, imagine watching this movie play out and you see this imminent threat and you're thinking, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? This dragon is here. The woman's giving birth. The baby's about to be born. Is it going to be eaten? What's, what's going to happen? Is it going to come out and, you know, shoot lightning out of his eyes and kill a dragon? I mean, you just don't know what's going to happen. And immediately gives birth. It's announced, hey, this is the kid that's going to rule the rod of iron and scrubbed up to God. And the woman goes away and the dragon's in there saying, what in the world just happened? I missed my chance. I mean, just in a twinkling of an eye that all the tension is gone. But here's the thing. There's more here than we might expect. If we just read Revelation 12, we might say, what just happened? But here's the thing. Revelation 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, is the controlling center for the whole book. The only way you're going to understand 1 through, through, through 22 is if you read all of it in light of 4 and 5. And here, the entire life of Jesus is laid out for us. He is, he is the lamb who was slain for the sins of his people. And yet he is also the lion who triumphs over their, their enemies as he rises victorious from the dead and has established the throne of God as king of all kings and lord of all lords. The only one in all of creation worthy to take the scroll that represents the plan of God and to bring it to fulfillment for the ages. So, so John's already seen that vision. And so, so as, we, as we see here, we see in that verse, all of what Revelation 4 and 5, all of what the Gospels tell us, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are all bound up in that one sentence there. The Son is born and He is caught up to God is summarizing Jesus' life. Not just His life as the Savior, but His life as one who is rescued from the attacks of Satan and therefore rescues His people. In other words, here's what I want you to understand. Satan was not just ready to attack the moment of Jesus' birth. The attacks went on and on and on all the way to the cross. So not long after Jesus was born, you go back this afternoon, you read Matthew chapter 2, what happens? Satan uses the fear of Herod the king, who who was worried about losing his authority and his kingdom, to, to move in his heart this wicked act of destroying all of the Hebrew children in the area in which Jesus was born. This is Satan, this is the dragon attempting to take out the child, but God warns Joseph and they flee to Egypt and they escape. Later, Satan will tempt Jesus in the wilderness to disobey God, yet he resists the temptation and Satan must flee. When that doesn't work, Satan uses the pride of the men of Nazareth to become enraged at Jesus' teaching and they try and throw him over the cliff. But God ensures that Jesus escapes. Again, in John 8, Jesus makes it perfectly clear that he is the Son of God. Not just a Son of God, but the eternal, divine Son, co-existent, co-eternal, co-ruling with the Father from before time began. And God uses the hardness of the hearts of the Jewish leaders to accuse him of blasphemy and to pick up stones and want to kill him. But Jesus escapes. Satan doesn't just stop once. He doesn't just miss his chance and say, well, back to the lair. No, he is constantly, as the dragon, looking for that opportunity to destroy the king, to destroy the son, to destroy the Christ. And he fails every time. He fails every time. God rescues his son again and again and again until the end. And it looks like he doesn't. Jesus is captured. 
by the Jews, turned over to the Romans. He is beaten. He is put on trial. He is kicked back to the, to the locals. He's put on, and then he's finally convicted. He's crucified and he dies. And it looks like the dragon has won. It looks like that Satan has finally got his triumph over Jesus. But here's the reality. It was all part of God's plan. It was all part of God's sovereign design to bring redemption to the world. And after three days, God proves it by revealing his rescue of Christ from the dead, by resurrecting him back to life, and, and, and ascends him back to his rightful place next to the Father in heaven, showing that he has conquered over sin, Satan, and every spiritual power. And that is such an amazing thing, not just for Jesus, that he came back from the dead, but his victory in the resurrection is also the victory for all who put their faith in him. His, his victory becomes our victory. We now are rescued from sin, Satan, and every spiritual power. Thus we see here both a divine rescue and secondly, a lasting rescue. A lasting rescue. Now, if I said four score and seven years ago, or if I said a day of infamy, I think as citizens of this country, we would all immediately know what we're talking about, right? I mean, those things just ring in our our American conscience about important parts of our history. And likewise, when we come here, there is a number that for us, we may scratch our heads and say, what is that all about? But for Jewish readers who are steeped in the history of their people, particularly in John's day, this would have been this just would have rung out in their minds we we see here that that 1260 days is the length of time in which god protects and preserves the woman in the wilderness now what does that mean well we have, to, we have to stop and do a quick history lesson because most of us are not that familiar with Jewish history. Particularly because we have this situation where what takes place takes place uh, in, in those 1260 days takes place in the gap between what we have written in the Old Testament and the New Testament, about 165 years before Jesus was born. So we have no record of it in the Bible, although it informs everything that happens in the New Testament. So um, I know... Dave is going to appreciate this history lesson. Hopefully the rest of you will too. All right. Although I think he stepped out with the baby. So you'll have to tell him what I said later. So going back to the end of the Old Testament, we remember that Israel had fallen into idolatry for decades and God had been patient. He had been kind. He had been loving. He warned them. He sent dozens of prophets to say, hey, remember the law? Remember the, the, the threat of judgment that I promised would come if you don't obey me and you don't love me and worship me? It's coming. And, and they, they didn't listen. And so therefore God brought in his judgment and the surrounding nations attacked Israel and they were carried off into exile. They were no longer, they were no longer uh, able to rule in their own land and to have protection from their enemies. But just as he promised, God allowed some to come back and begin rebuilding the nation again. However, the nation was still under Persian authority. They, 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 weren't, they weren't on their own. They had someone ruling and reigning over them. And eventually Persia fell to the Greeks through Alexander the Great. And when he died, supposedly of a broken heart because there were no other lands to conquer. I'm not sure I buy that. But uh, when he died at the age of 33, he, he said, no one can be as great as me. So he split up his empire between four generals. 
And here's the thing. Israel was caught dead in the center between two of those generals' territories, the, 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 the Ptolemy Empire and the Seleucid Empire. And what happens is they become uh, basically the, the object of trench warfare. The people are always coming right through Israel to battle, to battle, to battle, to battle. And so the question of, of whose kingdom they fall in becomes an issue too. And it's terrible for Israel. It's terrible to be caught up in this war. But it becomes even worse when a man named Antiochus IV rises to power. And he determines to destroy Judaism and its people. In God's providence, he's a man that prefigures an Adolf Hitler. This Antiochus made it illegal to go to the temple, illegal to observe the Sabbath, illegal to own any part of the Old Testament scriptures. Think about what that would have been like for an Old Testament Jew. He tried to end Israelite worship by killing the priests. And he even desecrated the temple by slaughtering a pig there. The epitome of unclean animal that the Jews did not eat or even associate with people who did eat. And he brings it right to the temple. Well, it backfired. What it did was start a war with Israel. One of the key leaders was a man named Judah Maccabeus, who he got that name because uh, Maccabeus means the hammer. And so essentially, as I understand it, he invented guerrilla warfare. You know, we think it was us in 1776 fighting the Redcoats, but no, actually it goes all the way back to Judah Maccabeus. In fact, and I can't verify this because I have no one who goes there and I haven't been there, but I've been told that at, at West Point, they still read the, the, the accounts that Josephus wrote about the guerrilla warfare Judah, um, Judah did against the Seleucids because it was the original. It was where it came from, and they still learn from it. Regardless, he led in this fight. Guess how long it lasted? 1,260 years on an idealized calendar. Okay? It rounded up three and a half years. And at the end of that time, he actually ran them out of Israel. And for the first time in 500 years, Israel was a free nation. Now, that becomes incredibly important for the people of Israel. In fact, this is where Hanukkah comes from. The celebration of Hanukkah today goes right back to a period when God sustained miraculously the, the worship of the temple during that siege. Now, what does John say? The son was caught up to God and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she has nourished for 1,260 days or three and a half years. John has given this image of Israel's history, imagery that every Jew would have instantly known because it spoke not only to a time of difficulty and testing and war, but also a time of preservation by God that ended in victory for his people. So we're told that the great dragon is defeated by the triumph of the son. Nevertheless, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But that woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to a place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. Again, three and a half years. Different way of giving the same number. Now, it's the same... It's the same imagery, but from a different perspective. Now it's a time of trial and testing and eventual triumph by Israel escaping Egypt in the wilderness. Isaiah says that God bore them up as with eagle's wings and brought them to himself in the promised land. So again, verse 17, the dragon became furious, the woman, and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and to hold the testimony of Jesus. So here's what John is saying. John has seen that from the very beginning, Satan has been making war not just against God, but against God's people. And all along, God has been protecting them. God has been providing for them. It doesn't mean their life was always easy. It doesn't mean it was free of pain or difficulty. But what it means is God is protecting them and there's always going to be something good on the end. There's going to be victory on the end. 
And so Satan, though the war is ended, he continues to rage against God's people, even for us today, for those who hold the testimony of Jesus. The decisive victory has been won on the cross, but he continues to rage because he knows his time is short. Again, you think about think about all the movies and television. We see the same thing happen. The villain's been caught. Perhaps the villain's been mortally wounded, but, but he knows this is it. He's cornered. This is the end. What does he do? Or she do? One final act of rage. Either, you know, lunges at the cop who caught them and tries to strangle them or tries to shoot a civilian or, or whatever it is. It's, it's the same with Satan as well. He knows the plan has failed. He has been defeated. He cannot win ever. And yet that simply makes him more enraged and he tries to lash out not at christ whom he can never conquer but to christ's people and yet all the while god protects his people he continues to rescue them from spiritual harm he keeps them safe from satan's spiritual attacks and he will do so until christ returns and we as his people enter into our own promised land right now spiritually speaking we are in the wilderness We are a time where God is providing for us. He is protecting us. But it's a time of trial and testing and spiritual conflict. But one day we will enter the promised land. One day Messiah will return and we will experience a new heaven and a new earth. So what do we do in the meantime? How do we continually overcome this rage of Satan until Christ returns for his people? Very quickly. We've seen the threat, the rescue. Now we see the victory. We see the victory. And here D.A. Carson points out that the people of God are able to overcome because of three things that are all in verse 11. Speaking of Christians, John hears a loud voice that says this, they have conquered him, that is the, the, the serpent, the dragon, Satan, they have comp- conquered him by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. They've conquered, they've won, and they've done so first by blood. We are victorious by blood. John says they have conquered the dragon by the blood of the lamb. Here's the thing. Satan loves to accuse God's people. We see that right in verse 10. He is the accuser of God's people. He loves to point at their sin and argue they aren't worthy to be God's people. They aren't worthy for the salvation that God has given to them. They aren't worthy as objects of his love. But John says, remember the blood. Remember the blood. Yes, you aren't worthy of God's love. Yes, you aren't worthy to be his children. But Christ has shed his blood for you. So all of those accusations are meaningless. Jesus has already died so that you can be children of the king. Jesus has died to show you God does love you. And you are secured by the son and the shedding of his blood for you. The payment for your sins has already been made in full. The righteousness you need for God has already been secured for you. It's not our commitment that allows us to overcome the the accusation of Satan. When you feel unworthy to be a child of God, you don't say, well, I give a lot to the church, therefore I'm safe. Or, you know, I always always do my daily devotions, so I'm safe. Or I even came to church when it was snowy and icy out. That's not the way it works. Because ultimately we'll fail. But we say, I can overcome. I can can deflect the accusations. I I can render them meaningless by remembering the blood of the Lamb that was shed for me. Second, we overcome by the word. We overcome by blood and we overcome by word. John says that he saw God's people conquered Satan by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Now, what is the word of their testimony? It is the bearing witness to the power of the gospel to save sinners. Here's the thing. Even as Satan is raging against us, we don't fight like the world. We, you know, I I was, I was teasing my kids a little bit and said, look, the moral of this story is not what you think it is. We were talking, some of you saw I posted on, on Facebook. 
The guy that, you know, Santa Claus is based on a real guy. It's kind of like legendary myth caked on this kernel of truth, right? Kind of like King Arthur. There probably wasn't Arthur, but, you know, there wasn't a lady in the lake and he didn't get Excalibur and, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I know, just totally trashed, you know, all of your childhood memories. There was a real guy named Nicholas who was a bishop. And the thing is, uh, he, he was very generous and uh, especially to the poor. And he would go out at night and he would leave gifts and food and money for them because he didn't want credit for it. He wanted credit to go to, to, to Christ and his glory. And he loved the glory of Christ so much that when he showed to the council of Nicaea and he heard this heretic named Arius saying Jesus was not eternal he was not God he was simply a man given God-like powers it 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 got his dander up and, and he hears Arius going on and on and on and on and church history says at one point Nicholas got up walked over to Arius couldn't take any more just went kapow and knocked him down said done very God, a very God, begotten, not created, you're wrong. And he went and sat back down. And I told my kids, I said, look, the obvious application there is not, you hear some guy uh, defaming Christ, you pop him in the nose. That's not the application there, okay? Um, the application is you should love the glory of Christ to be willing to do that. So this is why, um, you know, uh, I picture... Uh, Santa Claus, not as this jolly fat guy in red. I picture him as, uh, you know, the bishop at Nicaea with, though he did wear red and have a white beard, he's punching heretics out. That's my Santa Claus, okay? That's, that, that's my Saint Nick. But here's the thing. We, we don't fight like the world. We don't raise our fists. We don't burn cities in protest like babies who don't get what they want. We don't even take up arms to fight and rebel. We don't do that. We defeat our enemies by preaching the gospel of Christ. By saying, I was once a sinner, but I know that Jesus died for me and he lives for me and he has given me his spirit and now my life is completely different. I am a changed man. I'm a changed woman and you can be too. That's how we defeat Satan. That's how we overcome him. By trusting in the death of Christ, the shedding of his blood, and proclaiming that message to the nations. Finally, John says we have victory by sacrifice. We have victory by sacrifice. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. For they love not their lives even unto death. Here's a simple question. What do we love more? What do we love more? Our life and safety or God? Or God himself. For Christians, Satan's rage might mean death. He, 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 might, he might be so wrathful and rageful that, yeah, he might, he might take you out. I mean, we see that happening in the Bible all the time. We see it happening today in Syria. Christians are being slaughtered uh, quicker than they can be counted. But here's the thing. He can't really harm you. Killing you is not harming you. Harming you is dragging you down to hell. Earlier I mentioned Robert Louis Stevenson and boy, his life just, just makes me want to weep because he's raised in a Christian home by godly, God-fearing parents. He, he's read the Bible when he's younger. His whole story of Jekyll and Hyde is, is influenced by a Christian worldview of the nature of sin. But here's the thing. Satan used a warped nanny to so pound in him sin and sin and hell and hell and God's wrath and never the grace and love and mercy of God that he'd grow up terrified that he would never be saved. And then God used a woman that, that grabbed his heart, but she, though raised in a Christian home, was also not a believer. She dabbled in the occult and tried to practice clairvoyance. And so, and, and so again, impinged on his ability to trust God and the sufficiency of Christ for his salvation. So when you read his letters and his writings, it, he, he's always conflicted. I, I believe there's a God, but I'm not sure I can ever be right with him. 
and then, and then, no, there is, there can't be a God. Well, yes, there is a God. And he dies on his deathbed from, from what we know, reading the, the prophets over and over and over again. But the question is, did he die being just in guilt of his sin that the prophets are pointing out? Or did he die feeling guilty for his sins, but looking to the servant that we just read about this morning who would bear the price for his sins? We don't know. We don't know. And, 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 and so the, the, this morning, the, 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 the question is, the, the question is, what do we love more? You see, Satan, that's how Satan hurts us today. That's how he hurts people. It's by getting them confused about reality, about who God is, and about whether or not they can know whether or not they're saved. Dragging them down to hell with him. But if he kills you, it doesn't hurt you, it just sends you to God quicker. That's it. That's probably not going to happen to us, though to be honest, at least in my lifetime. It, it could. But the kind of persecution that we are called to endure is a lot more subtle. It's not the obvious threat of government coming in and shooting us in the head because we own a Bible. No, the, the temptation, the threat that we face is far more subtle. It's about self-preservation and self-promotion. That's the temptation that we face. You know, it's very easy to be bold on Facebook about Jesus, but what happens when you're face-to-face with your boss and their job is on the line? Are we going to be bold then? We love not our life, even to the point of death, even to the point of having to find another job. Will we overcome Satan by continuing to trust in Jesus' death and by continuing to preach the gospel? Or will we cave because we want a comfortable life and are afraid of poverty? That's the question before us this morning. On the morning of April 9th, 1865, Robert E. Lee met Ulysses S. Grant to sign an agreement marking the end of the U.S. Civil War. The war was over. Peace had been accomplished. But at the same time, from Montgomery to Mobile, the battle was raging. For even though the Civil War was technically over, the battle at Fort Blakely still took place, and the fighting was very, very real. Soldiers were just as committed to destroying their enemies. The guns and bayonets were just as devastating, and death was just as brutal. The war had been decided, but the fighting wasn't over. And the fighting was just as deadly as it had always been. Peace had not yet been enforced to its designated end. This morning, here's the reality for God's people. The war's over. The war's over. Christ, the Son, who escaped the threat of the dragon, has now conquered the dragon. When you think of Christmas, and you think of the manger, and you think of the young mother, and you think of the angels and the shepherds, and that beautiful olive-skinned Jewish boy, remember the cosmic battle that raged at his birth and continues to rage on today behind the scenes. Remember that 2,000 years ago, a woman gave birth to a son who would be the savior and the king of the whole world. Through his life, death, and resurrection, that son, Jesus Christ, defeated Satan and ended his ability to defeat God's people even today. Though defeated, though he knows he's defeated, he continues to rage against God's people. But on this Christmas Sunday, as people who have faith in Jesus, we can have confidence that we can overcome him. We have victory because we already have victory. We fight against Satan from victory, not for victory, because Christ has already secured the victory. He can't stop Christ, and now he cannot stop the church. Christ has won the victory, and so today we can overcome Satan by the blood of the Lamb, by the spread of the gospel, and by the sacrificial love in which we put God first above all things. Satan may war to take our joy and our peace, but in Christ we have ultimate joy. Joy is a people redeemed from sin, death, and hell. 
joy that is ours now through faith in Christ and will continue on forever into eternity as we dwell forever with our Heavenly Father because of faith in His Son. Father, may that, may that thought of, of the tremendous joy we have in Christ move us not only now to sing praise to You because of Your Son, but to live lives without fear, to live lives without guilt, to live lives without selfishness. For we know that your son has triumphed over all of our enemies. In him we have redemption, even the forgiveness of sins. Father, may we be a joyous people this Christmas because of the triumph of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.